Kreusor, welcome to Recovery Now Radio, which is brought to you in conjunction with Adveriad Recovery and Living Room Cardiff. Adveriad Recovery is a registered charity offering special support to those with co-occurring substance misuse and mental health conditions. Living Room Cardiff provides ongoing support and aftercare as a community-based recovery centre that has an all-addictions approach, including gambling, alcohol, drugs, both prescribed and illicit, sex, eating disorders, gaming, etc., or any other harmful behaviour. We welcome anyone who needs confidential support in taking those first important steps towards change and recovery. Family members and friends are also catered for. For further details, please see the Adveriad Recovery website, www.adveriad.org.uk and www.livingroom-cardiff.com. Diochen Thank you so much. You're listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. Persecution, you must fear. Win and lose, you've got to get your share. Got your mind set on a dream. You can get it. My name is Joe, and I'm your presenter today. And our guest today is Paul. Welcome, Paul. Welcome to Recovery Now Radio, coming to you from the living room and at Veriad. My name is Joe, and our guest today is Paul. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. You? Brilliant, thanks. Great to be Great. here. Paul has come in to talk to us about his addiction and subsequent recovery. But before we chat to Paul, let's listen to his first song choice, which is Nick Drake by Pink Moon. So I written and I saw it say That was Pink Moon by Nick Drake. You're still listening to Joe, and today our guest is Paul. Hello again, Paul. Why did you choose that song? Can you tell me a little bit about it? Well, I used to listen to that a lot when I was a student. Um, 
I've always really liked ballads and kind of what I love is the melancholy and the wistfulness of Nick Drake. He produced a load of really great songs, but he was never really recognized in his time. He was recording in the late 60s and early 70s. He recorded a song called Fruit Tree, which basically the message was kind of uh, someone's never really recognized until after they're dead. And, and that was quite a prophetic song because he died tragically young. He died of an overdose. It was perhaps an accidental one, but you know, he had so much more potential. And for yeah. me, uh, so much of music is about the creativity of artists and, and also the, the vulnerability of human creativity and the beauty that lies within that. That's very, that's very profound, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I surprised myself. <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you would tell us about your first experiences with drugs and your addiction and what effect did it have on you? Sure, yeah. Well, um, I suppose I'd been aware that my dad uh, enjoyed a drink. And when he drank, I, I used to like absolutely love seeing him in an inebriated state because, uh, you know, quite soon he'd be dancing around the dance floor pretending to be Mick Jagger. And um, I suppose I had this idea that you know, alcohol made you larger than life. And I was I was really kind of drawn towards that experience. And when I was a, a teenager, you know, used to, I tended to find that, you know, I drink with my friends, but I tended to be the one who drank to excess and, um, you know, usually ended up being sick and making a fool of myself. And I had a, a strange experience at school when I was in the queue to a, a chemistry test. And I didn't realize it, but, um, you know, it, it was a kind of standing joke, really, that uh, they used to, they didn't really keep the chloroform under close lock and key. And um, I was just standing in line for the test. And suddenly this guy put a, a pad over my mouth. And the next thing I knew, I was in this kind of completely, you know, hallucinating state. And I'm, well, am I sorry to say? I'm not sure. But I suppose I was, I was drawn back there, let's say. Yeah. to find out where the chloroform was stored. And through that, I, again, accidentally, I discovered intoxication from glue when I was helping friends on our sick form block at college. And they were, um, they were good at carpentry. So they were making units and stuff like that. And I, I didn't have any skills. So they just set me to cleaning up the melamine surfaces once they put the veneers on top of the kitchen units. And they gave me this, this fluid so I kind of poured on the, the worktops and I was rubbing off the glue with the excess glue with this pad. And um, suddenly, you know, I, I kind of I was we were listening to the Electric Light Orchestra, yeah. Mr. Blue. Uh, I never forget it, actually, because uh, suddenly the music sounded very different. Not not what yeah. I remembered at all. And I became a bit of a glue fiend in my teens. And, you know, I come home from school with with glue marks down my shirt and how my mum and dad never asked me you know and I go to the hardware store as a you know like 14 15 year old and I don't know why they thought I wanted so much glue glue solvent but um the long and the short of it is I had those experiences which were quite profound in a way really you know quite uh, shocking and they kind of shaped my worldview, I suppose. And at that point, I became really committed to the idea of, uh, of taking drugs. Uh, well, I think we've got a lot to talk about, Paul, yeah. from the sounds of it. But before we delve into it a little deeper, shall we listen to your next song choice? Thank you. That'd be great. That would be David Bowie, Width of a Circle.
You're listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. And that was David Bowie with Width of a Circle. My name is Joe, and we're still with Paul today. Paul, we got to your teenagers when you described experimenting with glue. Can you tell me what the circumstances of your childhood was and how was growing up for you? Well, I grew up on the south coast of England, so uh, quite a long way from Cardiff. In, in more than one way, really, it's both, you know, a, a fair distance away, but very different kind of environment. I loved it. You know, it's it was um, it's grown into quite a big town now, but then it was uh, quite green and verdant. And I used to love cycling around. It's quite hilly, you know, just cycling around, enjoying nature. And um, yeah, I was an only child for eight years. My brother's uh, eight years younger than me, and we're quite close now. But um, so I grew up really, uh, my mum was kind of a, a working mum. She was working from home, running a guest house. And my dad was uh, driving around as a commercial traveller, uh, selling stuff like uh, Smedley's peas and uh, Chivers marmalade. And my dad had been a, a cricketer. He was a good cricketer, um, but he never quite, in those days, being a cricketer wasn't really a, a job for life. Yeah. And they kind of told him when he was about 23 that, you know, he might want to start thinking about a second career. And he met uh, Fred Perry and uh, he started working for Fred Perry, selling shirts and stuff like that. And he was a lifelong salesman. He, he settled down eventually to becoming an estate agent. And one of the weird things about that was uh, he was always he always had an eye out for uh, saving money. Uh, I think I've inherited that from him. And whenever there was a house empty that they were selling, if, if they couldn't sell it, we tend to move in. And by the time by the time I was uh, 21, I'd lived in 21 houses. I was going to mention that to you. That's quite a lot of moving around, isn't it? 21 houses. Did that affect you at all, do you think? Well, I suppose um, I've tended to be a person who moves on. And at times I've, I've kind of felt like it's changed now, I'm pleased to say. But I suppose there's been a bit in my life about kind of moving on and, and cutting off your past mm -hmm. and I suppose those years of uh, kind of you know moving around we were a small kind of nuclear family I suppose I became quite self-sufficient uh, spent a lot of time in my bedroom and as, as I suppose kids did in those days and uh, you know enjoying my own company which I think is is a good thing um, and I've heard a lot of people kind of say that the boredom they experienced as a as a child you know made them the person that they are and you, you had to be creative about finding things to do. You certainly um, did. I remember that myself. Yeah. Well, let's listen to another piece of music of your choice now. And that's Joni Mitchell. And it's Harry's House. Can you tell me why you chose that one? Well, I mean, I, I love that David Bowie. I mean, God, it's really rocky, isn't it? And I could have chosen almost any David Bowie track between kind of 1971 and 1985. But um, I, I also really like, I love jazz and... Um, I came across Joni Mitchell uh, when I was a probably like late teenager, and I just love again her her skill as a as a writer of ballads. Perfect. Mm -hmm. 
You're listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. And that was Joni Mitchell with Harry's House. So back to you, Paul. Was there a time in your life when you felt that drugs were manageable for you? Yeah, yeah, very much, Joe. I went up to college uh, when I was 18 and I kind of, it was a very happy time in my life. It was a real time of opportunity. I, I really did. I, I met loads of people who, for whom taking drugs was just like a normal thing. Lots of middle-class kids who seemed successful, had a lot to say and um, a lot to offer and just fell into that kind of lifestyle. Um, but I think, again, like I said, with the drinking, I kind of always felt that, sure, there were, there were people around who you met who were hopeless drug addicts, you know, and uh, in the late 70s, there was a lot of heroin came into the UK after the Iranian revolution. And there were people who were much more serious about it than I was, but I kind of, I really kind of felt that drugs were a central part of my life. And I had this feeling that I was going to, it was like almost like a mission to, uh, to explore those different experiences. Well, I, you know, I've shared this in, in the men's group, you know, I suppose amphetamines became a, a real companion for me during that time. And over the three years, please don't tell my tutors, because I'll probably get my degree taken away from me. But uh, every, every single assignment I did in those three years uh, was, you know, benefited from the experience of ingesting amphetamine, or at least perhaps I think they benefited. But uh, I'm, I'm kind of wondering really if how much of it was, you know, the, the enhanced performance that came from taking a stimulant or how much I was perhaps kidding myself that really I just wanted to get wasted to persuade myself that I was actually doing it, you know, to improve my, my performance as a, as a student, you know. Yeah, but it, you know, it was. I, I discovered uh, LSD at that time as well, and I probably took more LSD than was actually good for me because, you know, I think I I got right inside my head during a, a period of time, 
Uh, I started talk, talking to flowers and things like that. Nothing wrong with that in itself. Prince Charles does it. But uh, uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I certainly felt they were manageable. And when I left university and came to Cardiff, really drugs almost disappeared from my life you know, for, for quite a long time. So um, it felt like, uh, I mean, I, I, I've always, uh, I had always smoked cannabis and I smoked that pretty well on a daily basis for about 30 years, you know. Yeah, I think a lot of that was was self medication. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, from feelings of stress and feelings of anxiety. But I think, as as so often we find, you know, you you start off thinking that you're actually medicating your anxiety, but it can become a bit of a vicious circle. Yeah, you know, then then it becomes more something that creates problems rather than re resolves and solves them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's listen to your next track for a second. You might have to help me pronounce this name, Paul. Yeah. Stella Chawazi, is that right? That's it. That's it. And yeah. Enjuzu. Why did you Correct. choose this song? Well, soon after coming to Cardiff, um, I I met the samba community. And uh, that opened my ears to world music. Um, and Stella Shuesu from Zimbabwe, she's called the Imbira Queen. She's a kind of shaman of Zimbabwean music, and I really love it. Brilliant. You're listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. Back to you, Paul. Um, we were talking about quite some quite serious things before that last track with regards to your addiction. Do you know what changed? And when did you know that the drugs were in charge of you? Yeah, thanks, Joe. Yeah, I, I kind of latterly, after the kids had grown up, well, Let's say in the kids' teenage years, and as as my younger my younger child was reaching the point of kind of independence himself, yeah, I suppose we kind of sowed some wild oats a bit later later in our life. Kind of started off with ecstasy, which we we kind of missed that whole generation of the summer of love uh, as our kids were growing up. 
but uh, it found us, let's say, latterly, and it all seemed fine and, you know, like fun. And when the friends that I was taking it with kind of felt that it had run its course, I think I, I didn't feel the same. Mm-hmm. And um, I think my drug taking started becoming quite solitary at that point. And the kind of a bit of a sense of desperation, it, it was it was when it, it was when the addiction really set in. And, and with addiction to drugs, you know, some people would think, yeah, you get addicted to heroin or you get addicted to crack, but you don't tend to get addicted to ecstasy or. But what I tended to do was uh, at that stage, it was quite easy to get hold of what are called uh, new new psychoactive materials, you know, yeah. legal highs. Mm-hmm. It's called plant food in those days. It all seemed fun. You know, you could buy it off the Internet and the postman would deliver it in a in a brown envelope. And it all seemed OK. But I really started use uh, becoming dependent on it as as the government became more effective in in banning substances i just kind of went from one to the next and it reached a point where it didn't really matter what i was taking it was just uh uh it was just something that was available to change my state of mind yeah you know i knew when when the crunch came and there was there wasn't really any escaping it i was i was pretty well a wreck you know and uh i'd lost the plot i'd lost sight of all of the great things in my life you know my family my friends my job Everything had become really hard work and didn't really seem to mean much. I'd been going to a counsellor to because I'd become aware that it was a problem. Mm-hmm. And he'd actually he had mentioned the living room to me. But at that stage, I thought, oh, well, at least I know that's something I could access. I always wanted to avoid kind of group therapy um, because I kind of always felt that the one threshold I hadn't crossed was was into heroin. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea that if I started going to NA or or another support service, that I'd end up actually getting properly addicted to heroin. But it came to the point where there, it wasn't really a choice anymore. And uh, I still had a little bit of obstinacy left, but it reached a point where uh, I just had to get some help. And that's yeah. when I walked through the living room for the first time. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Paul. That was um, really very personal and uh, very kind of you to share that with us. Um, we'll listen to your next piece of music now, which I believe is Jurechi Column, and the song is called Sketch for Summer.
You're listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. And that was Jurechi Column and Sketch for Summer. So, Paul, can you describe some of the consequences of your addiction? And what was the crisis that brought you into recovery? Yeah, I mean, I, I took a, a huge number of risks. I feel like I, I've led a charmed life in a way because uh, things could have turned out a lot worse for me. I could have died, uh, you know, easily on any number of occasions. And I, I've, you know, I've just got to be thankful that I've kind of come through the process physically pretty well intact. I, I think that, uh, like many people, you know, I, I've um, I've suffered from depression and anxiety for for much of my adult life. And as, as I mentioned to you a bit earlier, you know, I kind of felt that a lot of my behaviour was kind of motivated to kind of medicate myself from the anxiety that, that came with those feelings. And I think it did to a degree. It did. But um, it reached a point of kind of no return where I think I was more just purely dependent on, on taking the substances. And mm-hmm. I kind of reached a point where I could quite easily have done something stupid to myself, you know, and I was really, I used to experience a lot of really dark kind of dark periods of time where I had no optimism about the future. Yeah. So who, who knows, you know, what my life might have been like if I'd not discovered drugs. It, it's very difficult, difficult to say, you know, for any of us to turn the clock back. But I'm so lucky, really, that, you know, tragically, I've, oh, well, I shouldn't say tragically, but, you know, I, I have met people in recovery who, who have experienced, you know, really very difficult outcomes for themselves in terms of uh, whether it's their liberty or whether it's their relationships or whether it's their livelihood. And uh, no, I I have been fortunate really that there haven't been more serious consequences for me. However, you know, there there have been consequences in terms of my mental health. And, uh, you know, it's, it's through coming into the living room that that process of recovery is, has been able to happen and to allow me to see a, a life and a future myself that is free of drugs and yeah. um, I think you know it was it was relatively easy for me because of the state that I was in when I got here I knew that I, I needed help and it was relatively simple for me to to make that first move into ab- abstinence and I know that that is it's it's more difficult for some people than others yeah um I, I suppose what was more difficult and what, what has taken a period of time is of learning to process things in a, in a way that is drug free and, and isn't reliant on on that that stimulus and, and that that kind of rock that you used to rely on. It's, it's no longer yeah. there. So you've got to find that that rock within yourself and, and also, you know, through that through the power that comes from recovery and, yeah. um, you know, the, the support of the higher power that you can hopefully access. I guess with all those chemicals around, your own serotonin pr- production is going to be low, isn't it? Hence the depression. But Quite likely, yeah. yeah. On to lighter things for now. Your next song <laughs> choice, Linton Kweski Johnson, the Iron Bar Derp. Did I say that right? Yeah, it's, it's, that's, that'll do, that'll do. I mean, I, he's called LKJ. It, he was um, a big noise in... Uh, in the music scene in the late 70s and the early 80s. He's a very venerable older gentleman now. I, I just love his, his intelligence and he's like a, a real kind of men- mentor. Fabulous. Let's have a listen. London Southwest to England, Grand, 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 
police start to dig in. Mama, make I tell you what them do to Jim. Mama, make I tell you what them do to him. Them thump him in him belly and he turn to jelly. Them lick him on him back and him rib but pop. Them lick him on him head but it tough like leg. Them kick him in him seed and it started to bleed. Just couldn't stand up there and do nothing. You're listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. That was Linton Quezzy Johnson with Iron Bar Derb. What a trippy track that was, Paul. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Joe. I'd forgotten actually how hardcore that is. But if you're only going to take one reggae track to uh, your desert island, you might as well make it a full-out blasting dub reggae one. Exactly. Going into recovery days now, how did you find recovery and what happened when you began to get well? It was a bit of a blinding flash, to be honest with you. I mean, I my first visit to the living room, my, the counsellor that I told you about had, had told me about the living room and recovery Cymru. And, and all he said really was, oh, I, I think you might get on well with Winford. And didn't think anything more of it. Um, I'd, I went on to the website one night when I was really at a low point and uh, saw a video from our dear friend Neil and that uh, that was a real eye-opener really that, that someone could talk openly um, you know about their addictive illness and I came in saw Winford and for anyone who's met him you'll know that he's a he's a real kind of icon yes and, uh, definitely. a very very gifted therapist and um, I felt almost immediate confidence that this is someone who understood me and I'd never really talked to anyone apart from you know my, my counsellor and and my wife, probably the only kind of two people I talked to about my problems. Um, but I, I really felt confident that, um, you know, Win, Winford would be able to help me. And I think later that day, I came to my first group therapy session. And that really blew me away because to hear people who were able to talk about very, very difficult things, you know, either, either from their past or, or things that were going on from them now, you know, and to be able to share that in an open space where there was trust was, uh, I came out of that first session thinking, well, there's a heck of a lot for me to, to gain from carrying on with this. It wasn't the greatest of, of times in my life, but those Tuesday afternoons became a, a real important part of my week. It's not it's not being all plain sailing, you know, uh, I think the, the first I, I benefited so much from the early few months of, of coming to group therapy, starting to come to the Saturday group as well, coming on one or two retreats and starting to get to know some of the peers in recovery. You know, uh, I remember the first time that I met George and, you know, you, you meet people, they tell you their stories or they'll or they'll share those stories in a in a in a shared space. I really felt like I belonged to somewhere. I've had lots of friends in my life, you know, don't get me wrong, but I felt I was now in a space where I could be myself. I didn't have to pretend anymore. I mean, there's nothing wrong, I think, with, you know, like when, you, when you're with friends, you know, you, you have a laugh and you might big yourself up a bit or you might take the, take the mic out of yourself. But in the living room, you could actually say it as it really is. And, and yeah. the fact that people would accept that, you know, and they wouldn't, there's nothing wrong with it, you know. And in fact, 
people welcomed it because it, it gave them the chance to connect with their own issues and, and to identify. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah. an amazing, amazing space. So what we're really talking about here is a deeper connection and trust, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and acceptance as well. You know, people yeah. kind of accepting you in a way that you couldn't accept yourself. You know, that was, that was the amazing thing, that other people would accept you when you wouldn't accept yourself, you know. Exactly, exactly. So your next song track is Elvis Costello, Almost Blue. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I've loved Elvis Costello for years. I first heard um, My Aim is True, I think, in the late 70s. And I could have picked almost any Elvis Costello track. But I chose this one. Again, it's kind of wistful and melancholic. And um, it's a cover of uh, a Chet Baker song. And Chet Baker was one of these kind of jazz icons who, whose candle burnt very, very bright. You know, but he was he he was pursued by his demons. And I think what Elvis Costello has done here, because Costello actually supported Chet Baker kind of morally and emotionally when when he was at kind of his lowest ebb. So it's a really evocative track, I think, that he's he's honoring one of his heroes, you know. You're listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. Wow, Paul, I love a bit of blues. That was Almost Blue by Elvis Costello, and I really enjoyed that. Thank you for that. Interesting question for you, Nam. What would the sober you do or say if you got to meet the younger you now? That's a great question. I think I think the answer I could give you now kind of feels different to an answer that might I might have given you a year ago. Mm-hmm. Because um, kind of... Uh, you know, we, we say in recovery, we will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. And I, I kind of want to tell my younger, my younger self to just to be prepared to make mistakes and not to be too hard on yourself. I think I, I've tended to, uh, you know, ha- have quite a stern, critical parent tucked away, always, you know, like ready to uh, to tell myself off. And I think, you know, no one's got a a route map for this life you know I kind of I kind of want to I do believe in in doing good things 
not from a pious perspective, but I think it kind of makes the world go round. And as long as you're not really trying to hurt someone, of course, sometimes we harm people by mistake. But if we make an honest mistake, you know, hopefully we can learn from that and move on. I think it's very easy to kind of get stuck in self-procrimination. So I think what I'd say to myself is just go out there, do do what you think is right. And if you make a mistake, never mind, you know, just use it as a learning opportunity and a, a chance to grow. So the self-discrimination that you were talking about and being hard on yourself, has that been something you've struggled with a lot then? I'd say so. I mean, to the extent it's so kind of internalised that you don't realise it's going on, that it becomes a, just becomes a framework for your life. And thankfully, you know, I'm, I'm latterly realising these things. In a sense, if, if I have got regrets, it's that I didn't discover them a bit earlier in my life. But the fact is that I have discovered them now, you know, or I, I am discovering them. So, you know, I, I want to make the, the best and the most of, of the years that uh, the hopefully many years that lie ahead of me, really. And to uh, and to enjoy them and to enjoy being with other people and of not kind of censoring myself or of um no, no one else really. Uh, I mean, so, sure, there's sometimes I deserve a bit of criticism. And, and if I do, then I need to hear it. But really, there's no one out there who's got any negative intentions towards me or, or bad feelings, you know. So just go, go out there and enjoy it, you know, and, and don't yeah. worry. Absolutely. Well, your next song choice is Grace Jones, Pull Up to the Bumper. Tell me a little bit about that song. Well, I, you know, I've listening to these tracks, I, I kind of realised I'm a bit of a sucker for the torch song. And uh, <laughs> I've, I've, I've tried to uh, try to intersperse some of this gloom with, uh, with just some good, good old fashioned rock and roll. And uh, I mean, this this is, um, again, kind of reggae influenced. It's got Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare playing drum and bass, who are two of my favourite artists. And uh, in my kind of mid-twenties, used to listen to a lot of dance music and go out nightclubbing. So in a sense, this is a, a bit of a tribute to those days where Grace Jones might have been in Studio, is it Studio uh, 54? I was yeah. probably in a, a, a club like the, the Sailing Club in Plymouth, Imagining <laughs> I was in New York on the dance floor. Excellent.
You're listening to Recovery Now Radio. Let's recover together. And that was Pull Up to the Bumper Baby by Grace Jones. I really enjoyed that. How was that for you, Paul? I could see you jigging along. Um, good <laughs> stuff. Good stuff. Uh, a bit of Nile Rogers uh, behind the controls as well. Never, never does any harm. <laughs> then my, my next question to you is um, about the lessons that you've learned in recovery, really. What do you think the lessons that you've, that, what have the lessons taught you that you've learned in recovery? I, I always thought I was a very humble person, you know, and I, I think I've, I've learned to accept my arrogance and not to feel too bad about that. And just to accept that it's it's a way that traditionally I've kind of perhaps made up for my lack of self-confidence and self-belief by trying to do things to impress people. And I, I think what I've learned is I don't actually not only do I not have to do that because people don't need me to do it, but it's actually self-defeating, really. It's it's just something that takes me back to a place where I don't need to be. So I suppose I'd be someone who, on the one hand, felt they were very humble, but on the other, if if their slightest defect of character was pointed out to them, you know, they'd be a very wounded kind of child who's hurting and mm -hmm. needed to kind of either take revenge or, you know, to express their hurt and their pain. And, you know, I'm st still very much a work in progress. And I, I obviously have my moments. You just have to ask my long-suffering wife you know who's who's put up with me for 35 years you know well but I think I suppose... there's testament there that she's still with you after 35 years Paul that's true she, she's a very patient person the most patient I've ever met yeah I suppose learning to accept your faults I suppose is, is the big thing and learning that actually I do have faults that's been quite a revelation to me <laughs> no I mean on a serious front it's kind of just accepting yourself more for who you are and not yeah. feeling you've got to be someone else than what you are. And does that give you a feeling of satisfaction? And do you feel like you can live comfortably in your own skin? Much more comfortably, yeah. Much more comfortably. Yeah. I think I think being part of the living room community makes it a heck of a lot easier for me because I'm with people who understand. Um, but, but it has definitely equipped me better to kind of accept that mine isn't the only opinion that counts. Uh, it, 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 it pains me to say it, but it's probably true that there are other opinions out there that uh, are probably <laughs> just as valid as mine, you know. Indeed, indeed. Um, can you tell me why you chose your next track? It is Otterly by the Cocteau Twins. Yeah, thanks. I'm sorry, I've gone back to the dark side now. Uh, okay. After that lovely Grace Jones track. <laughs> I've made, some, I've made some dubious choices, but no, I mean, I, I love the Cocteau Twins. I first came across them. In the early 80s, uh, they were a lot kind of darker then, and they came out of, uh, they were on the 4AD label, and they, they had a kind of gothic feel to them. They've gone through lots of changes in their life. They actually, there were a, a couple, no, no, there were two people, not a couple. Liz Fraser is the vocalist, an amazing vocalist, who kind of makes up her own words, and uh, uh, this is actually an instrumental, but... I'd recommend anyone to get into the Cocteau Twins. They they moved from Glasgow, which is their hometown, to Bristol to become part of the trip-hop scene, which I really like Massive Attack and all those bands. Yeah. So this is this is a more melancholic of their tracks, but they're very kind of broad in their scope, and I'd recommend anyone to get into them.
You're listening to Recovery Now Radio, Let's Recover Together. And that was the Cocteau Twins with Ottilie, a very curious song. Paul, so on to Pastures New then and your new lease for life now with you volunteering at the living room. And I hear you play a little guitar and you want to find out what you want to do when you grow up, I think you said to me earlier. Tell me what that is exactly. Well, I've, I always feel like I've been, um, you know, like I've, I'm a I'm a father and now I'm a grandfather. You know, I've got a beautiful um, three-year-old uh, granddaughter. Um, but it's, you know, do you feel like a, a father? Do you feel like a grandfather or a son? Or And, and I kind of always I felt like a young person. And uh, so I really don't know what I am going to do when I grow up. I, I think I'm just trying to live in the day at the moment like not make too many plans it's it's obviously a difficult time to make plans isn't it you know or, or let's say it might be an easy time to make plans but to actually realize those plans at the moment is difficult because we, none of us we're living with that uncertainty aren't we about what the future will bring but sure. i'm i must say i'm i'm just happy i'm i'm at a happier place in my life i can actually say i'm happy now and I don't think that I'm particularly striving for anything um, because I think the I've been striving all of my life, I think. Uh, and it hasn't necessarily always served me brilliantly well. You know, um, mm. it's, it's a cliche, but it's it's about the journey, isn't it? Rather than the, the destination. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm not allowed to touch wood because I know that Winfred dislikes it. But, <laughs> you know, I should be thankful that uh, I have reasonably good health and I I have all the, the wherewithal of life to enjoy I think there's so much so much to enjoy in life um, that doesn't depend on you know kind of striving for material wealth or or that fear of missing out you know I think that that probably drove me of feeling I should be doing this I should be achieving that and yeah. I, I'm just pleased to be in a place where of course you know there are things that would be nice if they fell into my lap, but some of them, some of them do, a lot of them do. And if some of them don't fall into my lap immediately, then that's just because I'm judging my expectation on too short a time scale. So um, the simple things in life, I live in a, a beautiful part of the world. I live in a lovely little village, which is very close to Cardiff, but far enough away to feel like it's out in the country and, um, I've got the opportunity to really enjoy beautiful nature. Uh, I love the living room. I, I, I've got a few other kind of commitments in the community that, again, I really enjoy of supporting a charity called uh, Cardiff Third Sector Council. I've done some campaigning on environmental issues. Um, none of these kind of came about as part of the big life plan. They they just fell into my lap as, as life went on. And I suppose I should just feel fortunate that things like yeah. that do come my way and I enjoy them well it certainly sounds like you've got a full life Paul and I want to thank you so much for coming to answer some questions with us and thank you for your honesty and your openness and trusting us and the listeners really throughout this whole show it's been fantastic speaking with you so you've been listening to Recovery Now Radio coming to you from the living room and at Veriad I'm Joe, and our guest today was Paul and I'd like to thank all the listeners for tuning in before we listen to our last track of Paul's, which is Kamazi Washington, The Change of the Guard. I, I put this on really just to make sure that Greg uh, got a chance to listen to some jazz before the end of the programme. Brilliant. <laughs> 